This is Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith filling in for Jill today. Let's talk about one of the big stories of the past week here locally, uh, especially in the city of Surrey, and that is the green light given by the provincial government to the city's plan to get rid of the RCMP, <coughs> bring in a local municipal police force. Big step, big development in this story. Wally Opal now steps into the mix the former attorney general in BC, he comes in to be the head of the transition team to bring in a local police force. Uh, I'll tell you what, there's still a lot of unanswered questions here about the way this thing is going to work, the timeline for it, and especially how much it's going to cost. I think it potentially costs more than what Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum has been saying. Let's talk about these issues now with a great guest, Jim Sesford. He's the former chief of the Delta Police Department. It's always great to get his perspective. Hiya, Jim. Hi, Mike. Good to talk to you. Great. Thank you very much for being here. Jim, let's talk off the bat about the announcement by the B.C. government to give the green light to this plan. They bring in Wally Opal to take over the transition. Your thoughts? What is, is that a good move in your mind? I think it's a great move, Mike. Um, it's something, you know, sure you've talked about the old police force for many years now, and, and, you know, the discussions have been on and off. And, uh, you know, they, they now clearly they want to move ahead. Mike Farnsworth uh, making the announcement that they will support that, but they'll bring in uh, Wally Opal as an independent to, you know, to work with the transition. I think it's a great idea, and it's a, it's a real good move forward. They can have a look and determine, you know, where they want to go with this now. Yeah, to me it almost looked kind of like a do-over of, of the whole thing in a lot of ways because the city had brought out, a transition plan and something like a 140 page document describing it all there was a lot of criticism of that plan now you got opal coming in and saying he's going to do he's going to take a fresh look at everything it almost seems like they're starting from scratch here to figure out how to do this and i wonder if they can uh, hit their original timelines to deliver on this like one of the things that mccallum had been saying is he wanted to hire a new police chief for the city of Surrey by like next month. I don't think that's going to happen. No, I no, I don't think that it will neither. Like, um, I think that uh, now it's in the hands of Wally Opal, and Wally will make those decisions. And uh, it's hard to know when, in fact, they'll uh, they will uh, hire a police chief or determine even if, in fact, they're going to hire a police chief. So, yeah, I think the time, the timelines, I think, are going to be pushed back a little bit, and I think it's got to be done properly. And yeah. so the timing, yeah, there's not a, there's no need to rush into it right now. And I think Wally uh, Winnell will get control of the situation. And they'll make it happen if, in fact, it's going to happen uh, when the timing is right. What do you think about some of the unanswered questions here? Or sort of what are the biggest challenges to overcome to transition, to make such a huge transition here in the city of Surrey to bring in a new police force? What are the sort of the toughest things they got to do here? Mike, I think one of the big things right now in the, the the discussion I hear a lot is the costs. What what are the costs going to be? And I don't think that anybody really knows what the real uh, cost of policing in Surrey are right now. I, I'm not I'm not sure if it's ever been clear what what the RCMP costs are. And then uh, now to to make the transition, what are those costs going to be? There's going there's going to be startup costs and. And so those are things that that's a concern to a lot of people. As far as the transition piece, 
I, I think that, that that can be done. Uh, I think it, um, you know, they can develop a model for uh, effective transition. I think that's critical. Mike, I, I think the big thing right now and one of the big concerns in Surrey is the fact that whenever you're affecting change, as you well know, uh, communication is a key piece. It's critical. And, and I think that's been a huge concern for the people of Surrey and that yeah. – they they don't know what's happening and and there's a lot of confusion and I, I think people become very concerned when you know when they don't know what's what's going on and the reasons that things are happening. Well, yeah, it's been one of the big criticisms of this plan is that McCallum and Surrey City Hall didn't adequately consult with the public on it, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of his he's lost several of his city councilors have quit on him and to sit as independents. So maybe you might see Opal. Uh, do another round of consultations here just to get input from the public. As far as the cost of this thing goes, if you take a look at the plan that was rolled out by McCallum here, the new police force is supposed to be up and running in the city of Surrey in the year 2021, and the budget would be $192.5 million. Now, McCallum had been saying that the projected budget for the RCMP in 2021 was 173 million. So that works out to an 11% increase in the police budget in the city of Surrey. Jim, I, I just wonder if does, do those numbers make any sense to you? Because I just think that people in Surrey should hang on to their wallets here. It could cost a heck of a lot more than that. Your thoughts? Well, I, you know, Mike, I don't know what it would be, maybe 20 years ago, uh, Surrey, under Doug McCallum, did the same thing. They did they, they did a, a full review on the costing and looking at the transition way back then. And I recall at that time, and I was, I was involved with that, um, I can recall at that time that there would be startup costs. But some of the projections were, some of the thoughts on that discussion were that, it would cost money initially at the outset, but that over time they would recoup some of those monies back and that at the end of the day it would be cost neutral. So I'm not sure. Uh, one of the things that was a concern back then was that they didn't really, they didn't, they couldn't determine what the actual costs for the RCMP were. They, they yeah. couldn't determine, uh, you know, the number of resources they had and, and they couldn't determine what their actual costs were. There was a lot of frustration at that time with, with not knowing, uh, uh, you know, what the actual costs were now. And I, I noticed in this tr transition report now that the comments were the fact that they couldn't really determine, uh, you know, how much staff, um, what the staffing levels were yeah. for the RCMP right now. And there was a lot of concerns with uh, that, that they weren't, it wasn't, they couldn't make a determination as to the actual costing. So, you know, it's hard to know. My view, my opinion would be it's not going to be, costs are not going to be prohibitive. I think it can be done relatively, uh, you know, efficiently. And that um, I don't think they're going to be, the costs well, are going to be out of control. Well, one of the things people have pointed out is that if you go to a municipal police force, a municipal cop typically gets paid more than a Mountie. Like municipal police, police forces are unionized and they make more money. The RCMP is currently non-union. But here's something to keep in mind. Like, the RCMP is very likely going to be unionized in the near future. There's, a, there's a, an association there that's driving for union certification there, and they're probably going to get it. Yeah. So, you know, for people who are thinking, like, 
well, the, the Mounties are cheaper. It's a better bang for your buck. The cost of the Mounties are bound to go up anyway if they get a union in there. So maybe that's a wash in terms of the cost, do you think? I, I think Mike, you're right, right on with that. And, yeah. you know, a union, uh, a union or a police association is just around the corner for the RCMP. And, right. and that association will uh, certainly want to be... Uh, They'll want to be meet the industry standards, and they'll be looking for to match the, the uh, you know, the the wages of the municipal police currently. Right, right. Hey, Jim, just before we go to a phone call here, let me ask you because I'm interested in your take on this as as a former police chief yourself. the The region of Metro Vancouver, there are a lot of shared services uh, among different police forces. These integrated units. You got the integrated homicide unit. You got an integrated traffic units, uh, dog units. A lot of these are the costs are shared by different police forces. And the city of Surrey paid the biggest share of the cost because they got the biggest RCMP detachment. How are they going to deal with that? Because I've had other police forces say to me, oh, man, like what happens when Surrey drops out? They're not helping to pay for these integrated police teams. I mean, do they got to renegotiate something like that? Is that a challenge? Well, I think it might be a challenge for sure. Uh, but, Mike, I need to say to you that uh, the integrated services, the specialized policing services, uh, they're, I mean, you can buy in if you wish or, or you don't have to buy in. As an example, with IHIT, uh, Delta, Vancouver were not members of IHIT. Right, uh, Delta right. they had their own major crimes unit. Uh, Vancouver had their own major crimes unit. So you could buy an integrated uh, canine. Um, Delta are in. I don't know if Delta are going to stay in. They may they may pull out of uh, the integrated unit. So you, you have your choice. Uh, the municipalities uh, have their own choices to whether they, wanna, they want to participate or not. But but uh, you're right. With IHIT as an example, I believe that Surrey has 60 members in yeah. IHIT. Uh, right. that, that's a lot of members. And uh, but but Surrey will be a, a much larger. You know, there'll be a, a large police department, and they probably are a department then that should be doing uh, their own homicide investigations, similar yep. to Vancouver. Right. I mean, this is why there there's so many kind of complex moving parts that they've got to figure out here and get right. And I think this is why I think it potentially takes longer uh, to get it done and maybe, maybe more expensive as well. 604-280-9898, star 9898 is the number to call. Let's go to uh, phone lines here. Bob in Chilliwack. Hey, Bob. Well, good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, what do you think? What do you want to say? Okay, um, well, Surrey has to recognize a couple of things. Number one, they've gotten a fire sale deal on their policing as an expense to this point. And if they're going to try and replicate that going forward, they're going to end up in a situation where the duty environment for the frontline officers is going to become a little bit impossible. They also have to recognize that they make a few decisions as a city that, if you will, from the outside looking in, I'm not from Surrey, by the way, appears to provide safe haven. So unless Wally Opal and this committee can sort those things, and uh, if you will inform Surrey, okay, you're going to be paying a big bill here if you're going to correct some of the things that you did as a city and the fact that there's no more fire sale deal on your protective services available anymore. And hopefully uh, then it'll work out. If they don't recognize those two things, it ain't going to work. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, I've talked to the commanding officer for the RCMP in Surrey, Jim, and he points out that the cost per capita for police services in the city of Surrey is much lower than in some other cities. 
and he says you get a great bang for your buck with with the RCMP. What do you think about the whole idea in principle of getting rid of the RCMP and going with a local police force? I mean, at the end of the day, do you think it's a good idea to do this? I do. I do think it's a good idea, Mike, and I think it's it's a good idea for several reasons. And I think that Syria is a, is a big city now, and I think that they yeah. they need to own their own police department. I think that uh, uh, renting their police department is not a good idea, quite frankly. And you know, you can talk about the costs, Mike, and there are going to be there are going to be um, increased costs. And let me tell you just a couple of things: equipment is a, is a is a, um, a major issue to think about. The RCMP equipment is um, well below the standard of many municipal police departments. They're going to they, they're going to have, if they're going to go to a city force. They're going to have to upgrade their weaponry. There's a lot of other things like training that they're going to upgrade. So there are going to be costs with that. And I think Mike uh, just. Um, uh, maybe just to digress a little bit, but, uh, you know, the RCMP was severely criticized for the lack of equipment and training uh, for their members in Moncton when uh, some of their members were killed. And, and I think yes. that that's, there are going to be costs uh, uh, incurred when they actually, it, it's going to be an upgrade to policing and policing costs. So there's going to be staffing, equipment and training costs that are going to, uh, to go along with the new police department. But those are good things. Those are positive things. They need to get their staffing up, up to the proper levels. They need to get their training and their equipment up to the uh, desired levels. And that's okay. all in relation to keeping your public safe and you're keeping your police officers safe. Okay. Jim, thanks for coming on with your perspective. It's always great to hear from you. Thank you, Mike. All the best to you. Let's talk about ride hailing in Metro Vancouver now. It's been seven long years we've been talking about this now. Vancouver, still the largest city in North America that does not have these services. Looks like that's finally about to change. We got the detailed operating rules here now for Uber and Lyft. Looks like they'll start operating in the fall. Metro Vancouver taxi companies, mad as hell about it, too. Let's talk about it now with Kirk LaPointe editor-in-chief of business in vancouver magazine kirk thanks for coming on hi mike good morning hey kirk let's take a look at these operating rules here the uber and lyft and these uh, ride-sharing companies are pretty happy with some of these rules they got a very wide operating area geographically here to operate and i think also very critically no maximum cap or limit on the maximum number of ride-hailing vehicles on the road what are your thoughts well, that's a real win for them. Um, yeah. I think it's a slight win for consumers. But the problem for consumers in this is that there is a floor rate uh, that, that's been set so that really uh, what Uber and, and Lyft do in other communities is that they give you discounts and coupons and you know basically loyalty points and that kind of thing that you can use toward further fares. And in this case here, the passenger transportation board has said, no, you can't do that. You, it's going to be between 325 and 390 the second that you open the door on your vehicle. And, uh, I mean, of course, these companies can also charge uh, whatever they wish uh, above that. So yeah. when a con- concert lets out or, uh, or it's bad weather or it's, you know, whatever it is that they wish to do in terms of surge pricing, they're going to be permitted to do that. So I, I didn't see it as a terrible uh, you know, I mean, it's it's not great for the taxi business because, of course, there are a lot more vehicles on the road. But it's not fantastic for consumers uh, because it's it's really not going to be a market system. It's still going to be quite regulated that way. 
Yeah, no, that's a really good point about the the minimum and maximum pricing they've brought in. Because if you use Uber or Lyft in other cities around North America, which, which I've done in, in many other cities, the Uber cars are typically cheaper than a yeah. taxi. That's not going to yeah. be the case here. No, and and I think that that was one of the expectations that consumers were going to have, which was it's, yeah. it's not just the, the lack of availability of a taxi. It's, it's often the price of it. And especially if you want to go only a few blocks, the idea that, that you know, that you should have the second that you get in this door, uh, you know, three three ninety in some cases in Metro Vancouver um, to go a few blocks. Well, again, uh, Uber and Lyft like to portray themselves as kind of the last mile around some of these types of things. If that last mile is going to be a really costly mile, then then it's really defeating the purpose of it. Now, and, and also, if I'm a taxi driver right now, Mike, like, why do I want to stay in that fleet when I also know that, you know, the, these competitors are not going to be able to undercut me for price, but I'll be able to actually charge way more on some of those days of the year when, in fact, there's a huge demand for, for cars. And so if, I, if I'm a taxi driver right now, I'm looking at Uber and Lyft and going, that, that may be where I want to work. Yeah, I mean, you might have a lot of taxi drivers decide to become Uber drivers as well, because, of course, the government has brought in that class four commercial driver's license requirement, which is the same requirement for taxis. So all the taxi drivers have already got the license that you need so they could very easily transition over. Yeah. And and the thing about that class four license, and, and I know it's not like a super onerous thing to get, but it does cost you money. It does take time. And and so Uber and Lyft also have a huge number of part-time drivers, people who, you know, they're they're on their way home from work. Uh, They decide they're going to, you know, flip the meter on and they're going to be an Uber driver for two hours. They drop their kids at soccer practice, whatever they're going to do. And in this case here, because of the the nature of this, it's an impediment to having these part-time drivers. So it actually defeats the whole purpose of the disruption of the industry, which is that you get people who are using, you know, this side hustle of being a Lyft driver, an Uber driver, in order to help meet their mortgage payments. And uh, I think what you're going to still have are a pile of full-time drivers and a lot more vehicles on the road. And I'm not sure that that's the image, the vision that anybody had when this whole thing started. Okay, speaking of the number of vehicles on the road, Kirk, one of the things that a lot of critics of Uber and Lyft have pointed to is the potential for more traffic, gridlock, congestion, if all of a sudden... Everybody and their brother wants to be an Uber driver. There have been some problems in other jurisdictions. The B.C. government also seems a little bit nervous about that. There is no maximum cap or limit on the number of ride-hailing drivers are going to be allowed to hit the streets here. Do you think that's a recipe for a problem? I don't think so because, I, because again, the conditions that they've set and all other aspects of, uh, of the industry are going to mitigate the, the idea that you're going to have a ton of vehicles on the road at any given time. Where you will have, I think, I, mean, I think you're legitimately going to have some congestion around places like Rogers or, or BC Place or you know a, a giant convention or something um, at certain times of the week or month or whatever, because frankly, right now what we have are a pile of people trying to hail a taxi who can't get one. Um, so, so I think you'll see some of that. But again, uh, because they've set the class four uh, situation, because we're not going to have, you know, uh, the ability really to have terribly many part-time drivers, I right. think that that's going to largely deal with, with that issue of congestion. And I still think that people will use it to get out of their cars. 
to you know that, that rather than you know having a car um, that they're not using a whole lot, they're going to use Uber a little bit or Lyft a little bit. Okay, despite those uh, breaks sort of on the, the potential fleet side here, and I agree with you, I think that the Class 4 requirement does put a natural cap on the number of drivers right off the bat. You still got the taxi companies mad as hell here and demanding yeah. a meeting with the, pr- the Premier and threatening to yeah. sue, and they're just absolutely furious. Do you think they got a case? Well, look, the one thing that, that they really socked it to the taxi companies over was the jurisdiction issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've taken a look at the boundary of of the lower mainland uh, Whistler boundary for uh, for ride hailing. I mean, it's massive, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, you know, I have an electric vehicle; it would run out of battery power <laughs> to get from one point to the other. So, the issue there is is again, the taxi companies. I think were expecting that they were going to get this complete protection. That you know, that when John Horgan talked about leveling the playing field. That what he really meant was we're not going to give Uber and Lyft anything that the taxi drivers don't have. Well, they have in this case. And I think quite correctly, the incumbents are livid because, you know, they, they have so many uh, opportunities to frankly pick up passengers in places where they're just not permitted. And uh, and they, the so-called deadhead uh, fares where you drive someone to one community, but you can't pick up somebody in that community to come back into town. Well, right. if you're right. a ride-hailing driver, like you're totally fine for that, for, and and that's a real advantage to these guys, and that's why I think Lyft and Uber are not squawking right now because they've been given really the freedom to roam as much as they wish in these jurisdictions, which not only in the Lower Mainland Whistler one, but in in the other ones that the province has articulated through the Passenger Transportation Board. Well, we'll see how it rolls out this fall, Kirk. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. Have a good day. Just checking some of the reports coming out this hour from Hong Kong, where once again there are massive protests on the streets of Hong Kong. It's like every weekend here for the past several months, we've had these huge uh, spilling of people on the streets of Hong Kong, pro-democracy protests. It's a wild day over there today. I'll tell you, a Hong Kong police officer actually fired a gunshot today. Uh, during protests, no indication any of uh, any fatalities there, but it's the first time that a live round of gunfire has uh, been fired off since the demonstration started back in June. Also got water cannons uh, being uh, shot at protesters, deployed on protesters uh, today in Hong Kong. We have seen these protests spill over here in Vancouver as well, where we've had protests in favor of the Hong Kong demonstrators, and we've had counter-protests from pro-Beijing protesters uh, supporting the Chinese government. Let's check in with Brad West now, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, very outspoken on the Chinese government's record here. Brad, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. Another wild day in Hong Kong. We've seen count. We've seen uh, dueling protests here uh, in the city of Vancouver, too. I know you've been very outspoken about... Uh, how these uh, protests have, have unfolded here in Vancouver. What are your concerns? Well, look, I think they need to be understood in the wider context of the government of China's actions in Metro Vancouver and British Columbia. So let's just quickly roll the tape on that. We've had the government of China sponsor the Union of BC Municipalities, an organization of mayors and cities who are supposed to be focused on the concerns of our local residents and local communities, 
who take a, a check from the government of China in exchange for having access to these politicians. We have the government of China, and I've just confirmed this, Mike, the government of China has been paying for mayors in British Columbia to go on uh, state-sponsored free trips to China, where they tour them around and, I guess, you know, show them what they want to show them and tell them how great it is. Uh, They've done that with school boards as well. We've seen a number of school trustees, including in my own backyard in the Tri-Cities, go on these free trips to China, paid for by the government of China. And, look, if you understand all of that, if any of your listeners have had the opportunity to read Jonathan Manthorpe's wonderful, eye-opening, shocking book, uh, Claws of the Panda, you understand that the government of China is is pursuing a very coordinated and deliberate campaign to expand their influence and their soft power in Canada, and British Columbia really is ground zero for it. Now, understanding that, you look at the protests that happened a couple days ago. You have uh, a number of pro-democracy, pro-Hong Kong people come together and gather very peacefully. In fact, some of them were in a church praying. And you have a, a very non-organic, coordinated uh, counter-protest, no doubt in my mind, organized and deployed by the government of China. They all come out with their neatly creased Chinese flags, and they surround the church. They surround the church, and their, uh, their purpose for being there is to intimidate, to try and quell voices against the government of China. You heard reports from people who said that there were uh, videos and photos being taken, and they said they have no doubt that those videos and photos are going right back to the government of China to try to identify who are the people in Vancouver who are opposed to the government of China. And, you know, this is no normal uh, demonstration of, uh, you know, organic concern. This is very much a show of force by the government of China, on British Columbia streets, in British Columbia communities. And it is astounding to me that we can't find a single solitary politician at the provincial level, at the federal level, who will say anything about it. Okay, speaking of the Union of BC Municipalities, you're very outspoken about that Chinese uh, government sponsorship going on over there when is the ubcm happening and is that reception and sponsorship still going forward so the ubcm convention is in vancouver this year it's happening the last week of september uh, and it is going forward at at this point um it is again i i I just can't understand how people have lost their way I'm sure people get into uh, local municipal politics and government for for the right reasons, no doubt. But somewhere along the way, you forgot who you're working for. If you think it's okay to take a check from a hostile foreign government that has an atrocious, heinous uh, human rights record around the world and in their own country, and you think it's okay to take a check from them and cash it, and go and enjoy, you know, free food and free drinks and be wined and dined by them. I mean, you, you've just completely lost your way if, but, if you think that that's all right. But what about the trade relations between 
British Columbia and China. I mean, they're a huge trading partner for Canada and especially for B.C. with billions of dollars of trade and tons of jobs on the line. The diplomacy here can be really tricky, right? I mean, obviously, you've got to stand up and criticize China's human rights record or speak out when you see things that are that are not uh, justified. But what about our trade relations? We've got to maintain those, too, don't you think? For sure. And that's why we have a, a federal government and a provincial government whose responsibility it is to engage in foreign affairs and maintain relationships while also being in a position to be able to criticize. Look, if you have a relationship that can't uh, survive criticism of heinous and brutal actions like the government of China is taking, then you don't really have a healthy relationship. And I would argue that's been our problem in this country for too long. We don't have a, a healthy trade relationship with, with China. We have a completely unbalanced relationship where uh, it's basically a one-way street, uh, and, and we are at their mercy, as we have seen right now. I mean, that is playing out at this very moment. But the, the larger point I would make is it's not the responsibility of mayors and city councillors in British Columbia to maintain trade relationships with the government of China. They should you know, be worried about local community issues. Let's worry about cleaning up cities. Let's worry about filling potholes. Let's worry about transportation and those types of issues and, and not engaging in this wine and dine with uh, okay. a brutal, hostile foreign government. Okay, we continue to watch that one very closely. Mayor West, we got like two minutes left here. Let's bring it home and talk a little bit, uh, some issues closer to home here. Like you said, um, what about the Surrey police force? I'm interested in your take on that because when Surrey gets rid of the RCMP, and brings in a local municipal police force, some people might think, well, that's just a Surrey issue. It actually has impacts in other communities. Port Coquitlam, you guys got the RCMP there, right? We do. We share yeah. a detachment with Coquitlam. And you're right, Mike, there's been a lot of focus on that decision by uh, Surrey. I mean, one of the things that I'm very uh, closely following is, what's the domino effect here? Because uh, Surrey is the largest uh, you know, customer, essentially, the RCMP has. And when you lose your largest customer, uh, there is an impact. And, you know, a lot of the RCMP costs are shared right. amongst the municipalities that have RCMP detachments. And it has been unclear to this point. And I think that this is one of the things that the province needs to answer is, what is the impact to other RCMP communities uh, with Surrey pulling out of the RCMP? Right, because you guys, the, the the RCMP detachments have a lot of shared services. The integrated homicide team, you got traffic teams, you got police dog teams. These are all shared services, and Surrey is the largest uh, partner there. They pay the most money. So if they pull out, what happens to these shared services? Absolutely, and that's a question yeah. that myself and other mayors that uh, have our, our, our communities are served by the RCMP uh, have been asking, and we, we haven't right. had an answer to that yet, and I think that... Obviously, the province is now moving into this next stage where they've put together this committee to look at transition and hammer out the plan. That's one of the questions that got to be answered because okay. people in Port Coquitlam want to know what's the cost impact to them. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. As you've been hearing uh, on your news this morning, once again this weekend, hundreds of thousands of pro-democracy protesters have flooded onto the streets of Hong Kong, Things are extremely tense in Hong Kong today. It is a wild day there today. Tear gas, water cannons, 
police officers actually drawing their weapons, pointing, them, pointing guns at the crowd. There is one, several reports here of at least one shot being fired in Hong Kong today, but no reports of fatalities. Extremely tense situation on the streets of Hong Kong once again today. We have seen these protests also spill over onto the streets of Vancouver, where we've had demonstrations to support the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, and we have seen counter-protests by pro-Beijing, pro-Chinese government uh, protesters uh, countering those demonstrations in Vancouver uh, recently. Let's check in now with Kevin Huang. He is the co-founder and executive director of the Hua Foundation. He's been covering... Uh, those Vancouver protests uh, for the Taiyi. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I know you follow the Hong Kong protests very closely. Some really wild uh, TV pictures uh, from Hong Kong today. Let me just get your thoughts on that, first of all. It looks like a, a particularly tense day in Hong Kong today. Yeah, um, I pretty much check Twitter every um, morning after I wake up just to see the latest updates, especially on weekends when most of the rallies and protests are happening. And uh, this morning wasn't a great one to wake up to just because uh, it has escalated to another level. What are you seeing on there in your in your monitoring of social media? What's jumping out at you? Uh, definitely the gun being pulled. Uh, yeah, previously, yeah. it has been escalating ever since the June 12th uh, protest from uh, tear gas uh, to uh, police brutality um, in various ways. And then now there's a gun being drawn and fired, apparently. So um, waiting for confirmation on that. But um, that is uh, very concerning given how the freedoms of the Hong Kong people's uh, right to peaceful protest is definitely being infringed upon. We have seen protests in China erupt before and in Hong Kong, and quite often they, it's, it sort of seems to ebb and flow, these protests. But do these particular protests that we've seen recently, Kevin, jump out at you as, as perhaps a, a, a turning point of any kind in terms of Hong Kong's relations with the, the Beijing government? Um, definitely. So it's a it's a long and quite complicated uh, like series of events. So it really happened around an extradition bill, but... As uh, yeah. the movement went on, and the government really didn't want to respond in any prop like way that was responsible to the people, um, it escalated to the five demands, including universal suffrage for Hong Kong. They're not calling for independence. There are fractions of people calling for independence, but I think most of the people understand that uh, under the one country, two systems, they actually want true universal suffrage. So this goes all the way back to 2014 when Beijing wants to vet uh, their elected officials for uh, the chief executive. It's really incredible what we're seeing there. It just feels like we're seeing history unfold in front of our eyes. We, we've seen the counter-protests and protests spill over onto many other streets or uh, cities around the world, and including right here in Vancouver. Kevin, I know you've been covering some of those protests and counter-protests in Vancouver uh, for the mm -hmm. Taiyi website. What has that been like to, to monitor those uh, protests in Vancouver? I think uh, I've been att attending the rallies and solidarity, uh, solidarity rallies here in Vancouver for all Hong Kong people uh, since uh, they had one in early August. And for me, I knew that uh, watching, again, social media, globally there was a concerted effort by uh, mainland Chinese nationalists to hold counter-protests. Right. And I knew that Vancouver being the last time zone, this, and also given the demographic of uh, various people from Asia here, 
uh, the counter protest was going to happen. So I was prepared to go cover it just in case anything went down, such as uh, some of the more physical altercations of violence that we saw um, earlier in the day in other parts of the world. Uh, luckily, nothing like that happened here in Vancouver. Right. It's been pretty tense, though, right? I mean, like just looking at some of the television images of those, I mean, fortunately, you know, we did not get any kind of direct violence or clashes. But, man, it seems like a very tense situation with people yelling at each other and, mm-hmm. you know, just yelling at each other across Granville Street, outside the Chinese consulate there. What has been, how, how would you describe the mood or the tensions down there at these protests? Yeah, so there's been a couple incidences that I think that um, we need to be aware of, especially police and keeping the safety and, again, the freedoms that we're afforded here around the right to peaceful assembly. Um, like, So on Saturday, there was an afternoon rally near uh, Broadway City Hall Station, and that's the one I covered extensively. But there was also another uh, proposed screening of what's happening with a police crackdown and brutality downtown, and that event uh, downtown at around nine o'clock was actually canceled because there were threats of violence um, issued by uh, the mainland Chinese nationalists online. And mm. similar types of uh, statements have been made about um, on UBC campus, on SFU campus, and I, and I am quite worried that when school starts next week that there will be targeted attacks on like the Hong Kong Students Union and affiliated groups. Um, and there was also one incident on that last weekend on Sunday where uh, the same counter protesters showed up at a church where yeah. uh, uh, churchgoers were praying for the freedoms and um, the safety of the Hong Kong people. So I think these are all incidences that I think we need to keep uh, aware of and be mindful of just because as much as uh, we're afforded uh, the rights in, uh, to to protest and for peaceful assembly, I think uh, there is a thread of the nationalist counter-protesters escalating into another degree that is unacceptable. All right, speaking to Kevin Huang about the turmoil once again today on the streets of Hong Kong, the protests that we've seen spill over into Vancouver. That situation you described there, Kevin, where some of the pro-democracy protesters went to a church for a a prayer meeting and, and the church was basically, I guess, kind of surrounded by protesters supporting the Chinese government and the Beijing regime. I mean, is there any doubt in your mind that those counter-protests, the pro-government protesters, are organized by the Chinese government? Well, it it seems like uh, what I saw on Saturday at the rally, I wasn't there personally on Sunday, but I did hear from organizers what happened. Uh, it seemed like one side was uh, quite well supported with uh, new flags and uh, very nicely printed signage, whereas uh, the other side was mostly handmade. Uh, so I think you can make your conclusions from there as to how one is being supported and, uh, and who is be- uh, supporting each side. Kevin, we just got a minute left here. The entire world uh, transfixed by the events in Hong Kong. And once again, as we talked about, it's just an absolutely wild and very tense day on the streets of Hong Kong uh, today. What are your hopes for how this resolves? I mean, is there an exit strategy or a way for both sides to kind of stand down and come to some resolution here? Mm -hmm. I think that uh, it would be ideally the 
the Hong Kong government, which is pro-Beijing, would actually um, meet and talk with the people and actually pull completely withdraw the extradition bill. So the Hong Kong protesters have uh, laid out five demands, including the first one is the withdrawal of the extradition bill. Um, right. And so far, there hasn't been an adequate response. So this is why um, it has been escalating. And I do also kind of feel bad for the Hong Kong police who are put in the state where they actually have to carry out orders in a okay. way that it's taking the brunt of the uh, brutality as well. Kevin, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Hey, if you got kids in the public school system like I do, a few things going through your mind right now, back to school just around the corner, you might be thinking, thank God, get these kids out of the house, get them back to school. Here's the other thing to keep in mind, though. Could we have another teacher strike? Are you kidding me? Now, the teachers union is saying, well, there's no plans for a strike, but contract talks are stalled between the teachers and the government. Maybe you got some sort of work to rule campaign. Who knows where this could go? Let's check in with Keith Baldry now, Global News Bureau Chief of the B.C. Legislature. Keith, thanks for taking the time. Morning, Smitty. Keith, you've been uh, following these contract talks very closely over the last few weeks. Where are we at right now? Well, they, they made they, they made some progress at the table, is my understanding. Not not a heck of a lot, but it's not like they're they're going nowhere. But they're still miles apart. They're going to be talking for five days this week. They have a mediator uh, from the Labor Relations Board, and I'm told he's having a positive influence. Uh, but teacher talks are always challenging because they're uh, very unique in terms of uh, traditional labor relations because they're not a traditional labor relations model. You've got people from the BCTF at the table who are not professional negotiators. Uh, they don't uh, they don't they don't negotiate the same way other unions do. Other unions have accepted the mandate set by the NDP government which is a 2%, 2%, 2% three-year contract. Right. Uh, you can have a little bit of elbow room within that mandate. Uh, you can get uh, another quarter of a percent for, you know, uh, economic dividend type of thing. Uh, but you've got to negotiate within that. Where the, where the big problem is, uh, and has been since day one they began talking, is the employer, which is, represents all the school districts in the province, wants to change the contract language. And here's the problem. The TF won that landmark uh, uh, court battle all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada that reinstated uh, the contract language that was taken out at the beginning of this century, uh, you know, 19 years ago. The problem from the employer's point of view is that language is so old, it's outdated and unworkable now because times have changed. And so they want to change that language and give employers and school boards more flexibility. The TS view is we won that in a court battle. We're not changing it. The employer's argument is you won it, but it didn't mean it was doesn't mean it's there for, in perpetuity right uh, forever it, it all you all you won was the right to uh, have that language bargained we can't strip it from the contract but we have the right to bargain it and that's where the breakdown in the talks has come the tf refuses to bargain on that because they say they won the court battle the employer says we need the flexibility and i don't even think they've got to the wage argument yet they're still hunkered down and, and this intransigent situation right. over contract language. Okay, I know they want to raise, right? Like, I think they they have said they've been grumbled a bit about the, the 2% wage offer and said teachers have fallen behind other teachers in Canada. They want a bigger raise than 2%. But they've also yeah. said, well, we're, we're willing to give and take at the bargaining table around that. So maybe the wage thing is maybe an impediment, but not one that's not you can't overcome. 
On the other issues that you mentioned, Keith, around the contract language that was the subject of that court case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, so we're talking class size and class composition, right? Like how many yeah. special needs kids you'd have in each class. And it's almost like you get it's you get like deja vu on this kind of stuff because like these are the same issues they were talking about not at fighting with when the liberals were in power and and the NDP were cheering the union on. You you'd seem to think like well you've got an, a labor friendly government in power with the NDP it'd be easy sailing, but it never seems to be an easy deal with the teachers union. No, it never does. And it, as I say, it's a very unique set of uh, negotiations, quite unlike any other set of public sector union negotiations. Uh, the teachers' union takes a completely different view at the bargaining table. Uh, they, Their view, oh, every round I've covered for years, is that they don't want to be judged like other public sector unions. And so the yeah. mandate, the negotiation mandate set down by the government, which the NDP has adopted as well, applies to all public sector unions. And we're the problem the CF has in terms of getting the higher wage uh, package is that all the other unions have um, in the contracts they've settled the so-called Me Too clause, which is if any other public sector union gets more than we'd get, then we get that money too. Yeah. And so <laughs> if, if you were to give the if the government were to give the teachers union say three, three, and three. Uh-huh. That meant they'd have to go back to all the other unions that they've successfully negotiated with, and it's pretty well everyone, and give them uh, a, an extra 1%, 1%, 1%. And here's the problem. A 1% increase across the board for public sector unions is about $300 million to the oh. public treasury. Yeah. And you, you just see how the money piles up very quickly were the government to exceed that and give the TF more than... To, to, to. So my understanding is the TF is, is also looking to and willing to change the salary grid, which means yeah. it's conceivable uh, they could come up with a package that overall is roughly 2, 2, and 2, but does translate perhaps to higher wage increases for certain teachers, particularly new teachers, to try right. to move people into the profession. Perhaps they get 3 or 4% yeah. uh, in the first couple of years, and the others don't. So, but... Again, I don't think they've achieved much progress at the table on that issue. Nevertheless, having said that, uh, talking to both sides, there's not going to be a strike in the fall, uh, at least to begin with the school year. I don't think there's going to be any job action. Uh, The TF has changed its rhetoric noticeably from previous rounds when you knew the job action and the strike action was just around the corner. That's not the case this time. There's no prospect, no uh, prospect, I think, for uh, for teachers doing much of anything in terms well, of job action. And, and because what they're happy with, they'd rather have the current contract in place, which yeah. is, uh, which actually has the old language that was reinstated, rather than uh, risk going on strike and not having a contract that, uh, or having a contract that replaces the current language. Well, so you, you think like there's maybe a motivation for the teachers to delay or the delay tactics or string this out? I think so. I think they're going to yeah. uh, hope basically that they roll everything rolls over and keeps the yeah. current contract in place. Now that means foregoing a wage increase, and that might make some members unhappy. But I, I correspond with a heck of a lot of teachers, particularly on Twitter, and the appetite for strike action is almost zero among well, teachers. Yeah, I mean, especially some of these teachers that went on strike in the past, I felt sorry for them because you know they were getting strike pay from the union, but I mean they were losing money. At the end of the day, well, being on strike for so long. But I wonder, though, like you said, like I take your point that they're saying there's no strike, no plans for job action, but I've heard that before, and, and things can go sour quickly. And I just wonder, maybe not a full-blown strike, but 
is there potential for maybe some kind of work to rule, like maybe teachers start stop with withdrawing uh, volunteer hours for sports teams or clubs and that kind of stuff? We've seen that yep. before. Yeah, I, I think that's a potential as we go yeah. along yeah. in the school year. I don't think that'll be the beginning of the school year. Uh, but you're right that that there's certainly always the potential of that. I think I think Thanksgiving is going to be an interesting uh, landmark date. Uh, I don't think anything's going to happen till then. But after that, I think all bets okay. are off. Keep in mind, uh, unlike previous years, the TF does not have a big strike uh, pay fund. Only three weeks. Right. Right. Three weeks. That's not a lot of time. And uh, again, I think teachers just do not want to go on strike. They want to get a deal hammered out of the table. So the pressure's on the negotiating team to get something done. Well, Keith, is this pipe going in the ground this fall? It is, but that doesn't mean there's not going to be huge protests to accompany this uh, resumption of construction of the pipeline. Uh, Transound has announced that construction will resume, and in fact, it has resumed at its terminal in Burnaby, the Burnaby Terminal, the terminus of the pipeline, also the Westridge Marine Terminal, where the oil or bitumen is loaded into tankers, uh, also at a stretch of the pipeline route between Edmonton and Edson, Alberta. That's uh, the preliminary uh, resumption of construction. Eventually it will occur all along the pipeline uh, for a couple of years uh, until it gets in service. Uh, now, of course, there's, there's uh, t- at least two court challenges still outstanding, one brought by a number of First Nations, including the Clearwater Ban and the Squamish Indian Man, uh, uh, arguing again that there was not adequate consultation with First Nations uh, before this pipeline was approved. Uh, so that's in the court system right now, uh, along with another one brought by the environmental group EcoJustice on behalf of some other environmental organizations making a similar argument. So there still remains court challenges. There will be... Uh, demonstrations with massive civil disobedience. People will be taken away in, on the TV, in front of TV, television cameras, in handcuffs. Uh, so it's going to be very theatrical this fall, uh, and it's going to be a backdrop, uh, of course, for the uh, federal election campaign. Right. This is all going to play out at a time when a lot of people are starting to pay attention to politics. Do you think that, that Justin Trudeau maybe wants to see some of those theatrics? Like, I think the timing of this is quite intriguing. We got an, a federal election coming up in the fall. This pipeline is owned by the federal government. And here you've got the, the, the company saying we're ready to start construction again. It's almost like Trudeau wants to make a show of that, that, look, I'm putting this pipe in the ground here. Yep. No, I, I think uh, Trudeau looks at this and says the goods outweigh the bads. Uh, public yeah. opinion polls in B.C., for several years now, have shown that a majority of British Columbians back the pipeline project. It's about 60-40 split. Uh, the ridings around Burrard Inlet, where the tankers uh, fly the waters, they have been largely won by the Liberals by massive amounts of uh, massive majorities. Hetty Fry won by more than 20,000 votes in Vancouver Centre. Right. Joyce Murray in Vancouver Quadras, like a uh, 15,000 vote advantage. Jonathan Wilkinson won by more than 15,000 votes in North Vancouver uh, West Vancouver, same uh, uh, margin of victory, 15,000. There had to be a, a massive shift away from the Liberals for them to lose those ridings, which are closest to the pipeline and the tankers. And it's not like they're going to go to the Conservatives, who are just as much in favor of those projects as the Liberals. The anti-pipeline vote is going to be split between the NDP and the Greens. The only riding, I think, that is vulnerable to the Liberals on this issue alone is the Burnaby uh, uh, Seymour uh, right. rider right. with Terry Beach won by? He won by about four thousand votes last time. And that's where the terminal is actually located. But again, I still think it'd be an upset for him to lose that particular seat okay. to Sam Robinson and the NDP. Okay, let's uh, squeeze in a couple of calls here, Keith. We got Dennis on the open line. Hi, Dennis. 
Hi, Mike. I disagree with you on the teacher getting a raw deal, and I'll say why. I'm a parent. I used to be a PAC president for many years, and over the years, now my kids are in university, and it was just a complete mess. I mean, it's not student-focused, and I wish they would stay away from that. 80% of the budget goes to salaries, so it's always about the money, and we always try to disguise it with it's about the kids, it's about special education, special needs, and so on, but in my business, I don't get free volunteers and free parents coming to help me. In my business, I don't get the summers off. In my business, if you're short of money, I cut my salary. I've never heard once. Okay. Teachers wanting to cut their salaries. Okay, Dennis, thanks Thanks for calling. Well, I didn't say the teachers are getting a raw deal. I don't know where you got that from. Um, what I pointed out is that this is a militant union that seems to fight with every government every time, no matter what party they're from. So, I mean, you could have an NDP or a labor-friendly government like we got right now with the NDP. It doesn't mean they're not going to go to war with them. We saw it in the 90s, Keith. I mean, the NDP had to legislate teachers back to work in the 90s when they were yeah. in power. Yeah, no, the TF has a, has a track record of just fighting with everyone. I don't think it's reflective of the membership. I think it's reflective of the of the small minority that has a hold on the union leadership. Uh, and teachers aren't paid a lot of money. I mean, let's. I mean, everybody says, "Oh, they get the summers off." Well, they do, but uh, the trade-off of that is they have relatively low salaries compared to a lot of other professions. And it's where it's a problem is it's really tough to live on. You know, fifty thousand dollars a year in Metro Vancouver these days, when you factor in the cost of living, housing, and, yeah. and this type of thing. So I think I actually have a lot of sympathy for teachers' salaries, but the reality is you're not going to suddenly jump 20% in your salary. You're, you're locked into this, and you're locked okay. in with every other public sector union, which means two, two, and two. Let's squeeze in one more call. Jackie, hi. Yeah, hi. Hi, listen with the pipeline. Go, let's yeah. go back. Let's go back here. Yeah. When Christy and Rachel and, and uh, Justin are at the table, yeah, we got, yeah, all shaking their head. Ha, ha, ha. We got the pipeline. And then, then well down the line, then uh, Trudeau buys the pipeline for how much? For uh, We're responsible for it. Four and a half. Oh, thank you. Me. Thank you for the call, Jackie. It was four and a half billion, but it's probably going to cost a heck of a lot more than that. Keith. Yes, it'll be interesting who eventually does own the pipeline because there's two First Nations uh, groups that want to buy the pipeline, and that is a game-changer. If Project Reconciliation or the Iron Coalition, which are made up of First Nations across Western Canada uh, or along the pipeline route, if they end up being the owner or even having a, a portion, a minority stake in the in the pipeline, that changes everything because if okay. First Nations own this, that takes the wind out of the sails of the environmental movement and a lot of the opposition from First Nations. Keith, thanks for coming on. All right, take care. Hey, all right, let's talk about legal marijuana business in Canada now. Are cannabis companies a good investment? It sure seemed like a can't-miss stock pick when Canada legalized pot last year, but, man, we've seen a few pot stocks take a tumble here. Canopy Growth, one of the big cannabis companies, that stock is down something like 50%. Tilray, that's another one. That company has operations on Vancouver Island. They've taken a hit. My guest is Greg Taylor. He's the Chief Investment Officer for Purpose Investments in Toronto. He specializes in cannabis stocks. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Greg. Hi, how are you doing? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So I remember when cannabis was legalized last year, I thought to myself, boy, I'd be smart to put some money into some uh, marijuana companies, buy some pot stocks and Probably a lot of other people had the same idea, and I, I never did get around to it. Maybe that's a good thing. Do you think that some of these early adopters or people who are looking for value there off the bat, some of them have taken a haircut here, right? 
Yeah, and I think we're moving from that uh, that phase of early investors down to the operators, and we're going to have to see really who comes out of this because we're now moving from the hype stage when a lot of companies were buying into the the, the dream of this being the first uh, legal market, and a lot of investors globally were coming to Canada to try and figure out where they could get exposure to the sector. And now a year, almost a year or two the, after the legalization date, we're trying to figure out where the profits are going to be because there was a lot of hype that this is going to be a massive market and all these companies are going to have incredible profits and revenues. And yeah. and a year later, we're looking at these financials and realizing that they're, they're not being uh, realized yet. So there's a lot of people that are saying, did I get what I wanted and, and are all these companies going to make it? And I think now we're getting into the, the next phase of this uh, investment stage where we're going to figure out the winners versus the losers and try and figure out where the, the good value is. Some of those companies I mentioned off the top, Greg, uh, Canopy Growth, what's going on there? That's a big company, and how, how, how much is that stock down? Well, the stock's well off the, the highs, and, and I think what's really happened here is that last summer it got really exciting when Constellation Brands, one of the big uh, global beverage companies, made an investment in Canopy and, and took an over 50% stake. And and that really got everyone excited, almost validating the market and the strategy. And and what we've seen now is that they actually, as a Canopy, is now forced to actually deliver some of these, these numbers, because Constellation put in almost $4 billion of money into the company. And the last quarter of the canopy reported just wasn't really wasn't really great, and at the same time we had their CEO uh, basically get pushed out by the new constellation uh, board. And what we're seeing with canopy now is it's going to move away from being uh, the the company that was almost buying everything in the sector and really growing at all cost. So I think it's now going to move to the phase of operations where it's actually going to try and deliver on the on the goals. And it's going to move to good old-fashioned business practices of of growing a good product at a low price that they can keep on the shelves and they can actually deliver to their customers because that really hasn't been the case as of yet. Okay, how about this company Tilray? I think I saw that stock at around two hundred bucks at one point, and I, I think when I checked this morning, it's it's around what twenty eight, twenty nine dollars. Yeah, yeah, Tilray is going to be a classic uh, investing example, and you can see this in a lot of different sectors when there's a lot of hype involved. And when you when you saw Tilray IPO uh, last summer, which was it, when it came to market, it, Tilray did something really unique. Was it was the first company to do a direct listing on the Nasdaq? And what that makes it interesting is that while Canada has been the first market to really legalize. Uh, for American investors, they had to come up to Canada to invest in these companies. Now, Tilray is still, at all intents and purposes, a Canadian company, though it's run by really American management and, and financed by Americans. So when they did their listing on the on the NASDAQ, it was the first uh, listing directly on the NASDAQ. So if you're an American investor that wanted exposure to to the cannabis sector, you could buy Tilray. And it got really exciting then. I think this opened the door for a lot of U.S. retail investors to get involved. So we saw the company IPO last summer $30, and it quickly ran to $200. And that is really where you're getting the hype and the momentum behind the trade. But at the last almost $100 of that move was all momentum or short covering. And it really, when you get these parabolic moves, similar to what we saw in Beyond Meat on the last few weeks, that's where it's just, uh, it's more program and computer driven more than anything else. And then we had to have a shakeout. And now the stock's back into the $30 range, almost back to close to its IPO price. And this is where we're now trying to figure out what the fundamental value of the company is, and we've gotten away from some of the, the trading anomalies. Okay, the Beyond Meat comparison is is an interesting one, Greg. What's going on there with Beyond Meat? What happened there? 
Well, I think the interesting thing with Beyond Meat is that this is another company that the timing was absolutely perfect to pick up on a new trend that everyone's trying to find exposure to. And Beyond Meat, with their alternative to meat products, is, is perfect for a lot of different investment themes from from environmental to social uh, activism to, to the whole vegan trend. And people have been looking at ways to invest in this trend. And then when Beyond Meat IPO'd, uh, people are saying, perfect, this fits the theme they want to get invested in. And people jumped on it. And we had the stock again go from a, a $30 range on their IPO to quickly over 200 Very reminiscent of what's going on, what happened until Tilray last summer. Yeah. And now we're seeing that pullback. And uh, I would expect this is going to be somewhat similar to the Tilray chart, that while it's a good company, the valuation got completely out of control. And we're seeing competitors come on. And the scarcity premium that it's got is going to dis- is going to disappear. And it's going to go back to being a normal company. Okay, as I get down to some basic human psychology here, like when Canada legalized marijuana, a lot of people thought, this is a can't miss, I want to get in early, and like you said, a scarcity premium, so Canada may be one of the few markets where you could legally invest in some of these companies and everybody piled in. Is that basically what happened? Oh, absolutely. And and what's really interesting that happened is that in the Canadian market, going back a few years, we've had different phases of what people are really excited about. Like we had the dot-com bubble almost 20 years ago, and then we had a lot of people that were playing the junior golds or the junior oil stocks, and that was where the speculative money went. And then all those have really faded away, and everyone's looking for the next big growth area. And for Canadians, the, the pot stocks suddenly became the next area that had this tremendous potential. And then, so we had people People looking at that for growth, and then added on that the first uh, global country to legalize, and we had a lot of international investors come to Canada and say, "Well, this is the only way I can buy into this trend, so I'm going to buy some of the Canadian companies to to make sure I've got exposure to this, in case it is the next big theme." But in the last few years, I think the biggest change that's happened is we've seen other countries roll out a lot faster than everyone expected. Certainly, the Americans are opening up way faster than everyone thought of a few years ago. It's not fully legalized on a, on a federal level, but on a state-by-state level, it's getting to, these are becoming huge markets, and there's huge companies being created in the U.S. with big brands. And I think people are starting to shift some of their investment dollars away from the Canadian companies to some of these U.S. ones, and beyond that, to some uh, some global players. Okay, does that mean then, Greg, that especially as American legalization continues, that some of these marijuana stocks are going to bounce back, or maybe I guess it's you know some of these companies are going to fail and some of them are going to thrive, right? Oh, absolutely. This is going to be a complete survival of the fittest coming out. Uh, there were well over 100 companies that got licensed in Canada, and the company, the country is just not big enough to to have a market with that many players in it. And we're going to go through the, the period now where there's a shakeup between the winners and losers, and I think investors have to realize that not every one of these companies is going to survive, and you really need to do your homework and focus on companies that, that will. Do you think that uh, the way the government has handled the rollout of of legal cannabis in Canada, and I'm talking both federal and provincial governments, and I I think in some cases it's been botched in many ways. Has that hampered the stock prices of some of these companies in, in any way? Oh, oh, absolutely. It, it's not helping at all. Um, I, I, there are a few problems with the way the governments have rolled this out. From a federal level, I, I think where they're, they're hurting them is the, the ban on advertising, and, and which is really going to impair the ability to create a brand. And 
what they seem to be doing is really relying off of the ban on the cigarette advertising, which is probably not a, a bad goal from an ethical point of view. But from a business building point of view, everyone's going to realize that brands are where the value is. And these companies are struggling trying to figure out how to create a brand that they can take globally when you can't advertise on it. So someone will figure out how to do this, but it's making it harder for the brand to be created that's going to be the, the Heineken of the sector that can go globally. And whether that can come from Canada is going to be a tough challenge to make. Uh, the other thing on the provincial level is they really have botched the rollouts from the retail uh, point of view. Uh, Ontario, for sure, has is no one was expecting it to take this long to get physical stores up and running. And and that's happening across other provinces as well. And when we're people look, were looking at the financial projections for these companies, I think a lot of them had expected that there would be a more broader rollout across the provincial level. And the fact that that hasn't come have definitely dragged down on these financials. Greg, it's a really interesting topic. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me.